Well, I've made a decision. When it comes to the title, Can God Trust Us? It's probably the worst sermon series title I've ever had. I mean, it fit really great with our first message, but kind of afterwards, it really kind of lost its alignment, if you will, with what we were talking about. Because we've been on a journey here at the beginning of the start of the year is to kind of give ourselves a spiritual checkup. Taking a look and just see spiritually how well are we doing. You know, we, we, we generally go to the doctor for a well physical once a year, you know, and they take your blood and they run all these tests and they listen to your heart and they take your blood pressure and they tell you you weigh too much and all this kind of good stuff. And, 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 you, and, you, and, and we, get, we get a checkup to see how we're really doing physically. Well, we've been on that journey as we've started 2014 to see really kind of how well are we doing spiritually. So it's been a kind of a diagnostic journey. And, and I, I think a little review would be helpful as we get started here. The, the first issue we really looked at was stewardship. Not a word that you use every day, but it's the word stewardship. How are we managing what it is that God has given us in his eyes? And really the diagnostic question there is, is the, is the stuff in our lives either hindering our commitment or enhancing our commitment in terms of walking for God and giving glory through the way we live our lives. It's a question that really gets to the heart of the matter for a lot of us about a lot of things. Secondly, we took a look at prayer. It's a message that George preached while I was gone for my son's wedding. And essentially we asked the question, is there anything we're missing spiritually because we just haven't asked for it? Are there aspects of our spiritual journey, whether it's our usefulness to God, whether it's transformation of our character, maybe it's our ability to understand the Word, maybe it's our ability to teach others in the name of Christ or to share our faith. Are there things that are lacking in our lives simply because we have not asked God for it? The third was focused around the heart. It's a little harder for us to get at, but we used a passage from the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And we really use that as a, as a stepping stone to ask the question, when it comes to God's word to us, is when it comes to God's teaching to us, what really is the condition of our hearts in responding to it? Are we, are we just trying to kind of meet the minimum standard? Like, okay, when it comes to praying for my enemies, is that like once a year or once a week or once a month? Or is it, you know, I mean, we're, and we're just, eh, you know, we just, Barely want to get up to say, well, I got I to see in that class, you know? Or are we really coming to God's word and saying, I want to become who these commandments indicate we can be? Do we, we, are we really going after the spirit of what God's saying to us and reaching out for all the ways that he can change us? Last week, we looked at the issue of the mind. Got a lot of response from people after last week's message. You know, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, about taking every thought uh, captive in obedience to Christ, you know, and, and really asking the question is, what's going on between our ears and behind our eyes? Is it leading our spiritual transformation or is it a barrier to our spiritual transformation? And we looked about the importance of learning how to think the way that God thinks. Today, we have one last one that I want to put on the plate for us, and that has to do with our attitudes. So we've looked at stewardship, prayer, the heart, the mind, and now I want to look at our attitudes. And here's the diagnostic question. Is thankfulness a way of life for us, or is it just an emotion? 
that comes and goes. Is thankfulness our character, a quality of our lives, just a, a default instinct about the way we live our lives, or is it simply an emotion that kind of comes and goes? You know, do we, do we love the, the Red Sox when they world, win the World Series, but when they stink, do we abandon them? You know, I mean, so is our, or do we stick with them through thick and thin? You know, and in the same way, is thankfulness a part of the way we, now, here, here's why I think this is such a powerful diagnostic question for us. Because if our lives are marked by thankfulness, it really reflects the fact that we understand who God is and how God may use us. When thankfulness is more of an emotion, what it really tells us is, you know what? My understanding is, is that God's here to make my life better. And if God's not making my life better, I'm not happy. And I'm not thankful. But if we understand that God's sovereign, some of us, he's going to give us the golden trail. You know, others of us, we're, we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But if we understand that God uses everybody differently, and he works differently in people's lives, and he has the right to do that, and that reflects itself in the way that we live thankful lives, then it tells us what we really believe about who God is. So I want to talk to us today about thankfulness. And I, I want to start with a short passage and then move over to a story in the book of Acts that I think just really speaks to this issue to us about how to cultivate a life of thankfulness. But I want to lay us in, on a foundation. So if you would, I'd love you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Just want to take a look at the, the 18th verse. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, which you should find underneath a chair there in front of you or, or underneath you, our text is on page 1005. Paul here is wrapping up his letter to the church of Thessalonica. Maybe he's running out of paper or whatever. And so he gets to the end and he just, he gives some real bullet kinds of instructions to them. And he says, you know, rejoice always, pray constantly. And then in verse 18, he makes this statement. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're using your own Bible or you got, you know, you're looking at it digitally or whatever and you can highlight, highlight the word in, highlight the word everything, and highlight the, word God, the words God's will. It doesn't say that we're supposed to give thanks for everything, but it does say that we need to give thanks in everything. Now, everything covers a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Can you think of any experience of life that doesn't fit under the category of everything? doesn't. So God says, and, and no matter what's going on in your life, give thanks. Because this is my will for you. This is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to be. Are we willing just to kind of offer some words of thanks? Or really is the condition of our heart an attitude of thankfulness before God? That's the challenge for us. Now, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to know that that can get very difficult at times. Sometimes our, our lives, they, they, you know, we can look at people and they just seem that, that they're blessed. Just everything they touch turns to gold and et cetera, and, and, they, and they just seem to have lives that are incredible, you know. And, and we look at them and sometimes we get envious. But it doesn't take too much looking around to realize that most of us probably really aren't living out the lives that we would have planned for ourselves back when we were 18, right? There's been a few potholes along the way, a few diversions, et cetera, whatever. And sometimes it's really heavy stuff. 
You know, th- there's, there's a lot of pain that comes into people's lives. You know, I looked around the, uh, this, the, the congregation in the first service, and there's some people who are dealing with some really significant issues in their families or in their health. You know, I told, you know, the, just a, a, a guy who came to mind, I, I hadn't, haven't talked to him in years, but there was a season back in a former life, I used to be the administrator of the summer youth camp. Back then it was called Centrifuge, now it's called Crosswalk, and and, and I was the administrator. I didn't have anything to really do with the program that they did on a daily basis. But my job was to work with all the churches, get everybody placed, and deal with any discipline issues that occurred among the teenagers while they were there. You know, and, um, and occasionally that happened. Like one time we had a, had a church group of four from a church. Got there the very first night. They stuck out of the dorms. They were out in the woods. They knew we were looking for them. They were trying to avoid us. You know, 3 o'clock in the morning, they got to have them call up their parents and say, you got to come get your kid. You know, and, I mean, if you don't send them home for that, what do you send them home for, right? I mean, it's the first night of camp. It's just going to be downhill, right? But I remember there was a time on a, it was Saturday morning. It was like 4 o'clock in the morning and my phone rings. It's never a good thing when your phone rings at 4 o'clock in the morning. One of our counselors, one of our churches in in uh, another state here in New England, he said, "I, I just caught two of my kids smoking pot. What do you want me to do? And, you know, at that point in time, if we had called his parents and they had driven their parents and they had driven up there, all the other kids would have been off campus already headed home. So I, I didn't want to stay late. I said, you know what, we just we met with the kids and I said, you know what, you have to call your parents to tell you what happened, tell them what happened before before you leave the campus. One of the kids was a pastor's kid. And I followed up with the, him afterwards and we chatted and th- his, his son was adopted. Some issues coming out of the, the birth experience or whatever. And he, had, he was just giving him a lot of heartache. Kid was in sh- school, trouble in school a lot, str- trouble with the police, breaking and enterings and et cetera, trouble, you know, with drugs and alcohol. And, in fact, through our journey, we got together and prayed for him on several different occasions. And through that journey, he, his son, who was a senior in high school at that point, developed a relationship with a freshman in high school. And the parents got upset and worked to press charges, and he went to prison for having doing active with a un, with a minor because he was over 18. And he, and he went to prison for a couple of years. It's pretty hard to be thankful in those moments, isn't it? Real hard. Last night at YAC, you know, with the, 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 the team that's kind of leading this weekend is from a church in Nashville, um, Long Hollow Baptist Church, I think. I mean, it's a good-sized congregation. A large congregation. I mean, their youth pastor here is he's doing the speaking, and, and he's been tremendous from everything I understand. But they also brought their youth worship team, and so they have a youth worship pastor. <laughs> so when you have a pastor on staff who does nothing but youth worship, you know you're a big church, right? You know, and and but the guy playing the drums, early twenties, is the pastor's kid, the, the the overall pastor's kid. And Allison was telling me last night that it was a this was a guy that she went to high school went to seminary with, and the father's probably late 50s, early 60s. God's been using, and they've, they've, they've just done a tremendous ministry. The church has grown great. The father is one of a thousand people in the world who have this type of cancer that's going to kill him within 24 hours. It's hard to be thankful. Yet God steps in and says, give thanks in everything. Because this is my will for you. This is what I want you to do. And and you've got to realize at that moment, it's, it's not an emotion, right? It's a condition of the heart. And it flows out of that. And so how do you get to that condition? 
How do we cultivate a spirit of thankfulness in our lives before God? So it literally becomes a part of who we are and the way we do life. And, and you know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Acts chapter 16. And I'd love for you to turn over with me to Acts chapter 16. We're going to work through this just a little bit. And, and as we look at this experience, I, I think we can see three things that we can learn from these guys, the practitioners of gratefulness, of thankfulness. We can take a look at them and see how we can cultivate thankfulness in our own lives. And to tell you how important this is, what does Psalm 100 verse 4 say? It says, enter his courts with thanksgiving in your heart. You want to you show up and knock on the door to get into the presence of God, and they say, what's the password? The password is, thank you. And if we don't have thank you on our hearts, the presence of God is pretty hard to come by. So it's important for us to cultivate this. Now, this is a great story. Paul and Silas are, are in Philippi. They weren't there by choice. They were there by God's direction. They were on a second missionary journey. They had been in Asia Minor. They really wanted to go in parts of Asia Minor that they hadn't been before. They were trying to push in that direction, and at the last minute, God just wouldn't let them go. And they had this Macedonian vision, so they crossed over, and they have set foot in Europe for the very first time in a city by the name of Philippi. They're on the southern rim of Europe, and, and they've already had at least one convert, a woman by the name of Lydia, and they've taken up residence in her home, and they're doing ministry. Pick up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16, page 942 in your pew Bibles. And here's what it says, and once, as we were on our way to prayer, it was a custom of the Jews to to pray, you know, every day, and they usually, when they didn't have a synagogue to go to, they would go out to a place by the river or whatever, some place that was set apart, and they would meet for prayer. So Paul and, and his entourage are on their way out to prayer, and a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. Now, actually, the Greek is, is she had a python spirit. The python, the snake, was an, a symbol for this Delphic oracle who was related to the god Apollo, who was supposed to be the god of the future. And so she had, they referred to her because she was able to tell the future because of the spirit that she had. They referred to her as having a python spirit, a, a spirit that came from Apollo, if you will. So, so the slave girl met them on the road who had a spirit of prediction, and she made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. You could probably make a killing in the market today if you had somebody who could tell the future, right? And as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated. And turning to the Spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. I mean, what's up with that? Not the, not the miracle part, but, I mean, Paul's getting free advertising, right? I mean, this girl is walking after them day after day, saying, these men are slaves of the Most High. You know, you know they're proclaiming. Why wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't it be great to have somebody standing out in the street corner down here and say, you go to Hope Chapel. They're going to teach you about how to really, you know, it'd be great stuff, right? Well, there's a lot more going on here than, than that. Really, this girl was probably creating more confusion than she was being helpful. I mean, the, the Roman Greco world was full of saviors. They were full of most high God. And so she's proclaiming this out there, and, and really she's, she's probably making the interpretation, the explanation of the gospel harder rather than easier. 
You know, you just go back a couple of chapters. Paul and Barnabas are, are, are in Lystra, and they heal somebody, and they think that there's Zeus and Apollo, right? You know, or Zeus and Hermes, you know, and, and they're saying, no, 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 we're not gods. Don't sacrifice anything to us. And the next thing you know, they're beaten up and left on the side of the road. I mean, there was a lot of theological chaos, and this girl's not helping. And so Paul says, that's it, shut up. In the name of Christ, come out. She comes out. Verse 19. When her owners saw that her, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. In the middle of the main place where they did all the trading, there would have been a, like a platform, a stage, which would have served like the courthouse. And bringing them before the chief magistrates, a couple of guys whose job was to run the city and run the judicial system, these men, they said this, these men are seriously disturbing our city. Big no-no in the ancient world, in the Roman world. No unrest. No protests, no disruptions. We want calm. Said so they're Jews. They're tapping into the anti-Semitism that was around. And they're promoting customs that are not legal for us. They're breaking the law for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. So then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates had them, their clothes stripped off of them, and they ordered them to be beaten with rods. Now, this is not like a, a steel rod. These would have been like sticks that would have a whip to them. And they would have just whipped them, you know, with these sticks. Instead of having like a whip made out of leather, they would, it would have been just like a, a fresh branch off of a thing. In fact, the emblem of the magistrates in most of these cities was a bundle of these sticks with a hammer coming out of the, cutting across it, you know. And so the idea was we have the authority, don't cross us, you know. And so they, so verse 23, and after they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. And receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison, and he secured their feet in the stocks. Their feet were just nailed down. So here's Paul and Silas. They're, you know, the other group seems to have escaped, the, the rest of the Luke and others that were with them. Just the two of them. It says, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were sitting in their jail cell, and they're whining to God. I told you, we didn't want to come to Europe. We wanted to go into North America. We, we do this miracle, and look what happens to us. You know? No, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're giving thanks. They're in the presence of God. They've come up to the worship door of God, and God said, what's the word to get in? What's the password? And they've said, thank you. And they're praying and they're singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. It was the rule in, Roman world, in the Roman world that a jailer was responsible for the custody of his prisoners even to the point of death so if he lost the prisoner then they would try him and torture him until they killed him so it's just easier to take your own life less painful so he's figuring they're all gone but verse look at verse 28 but paul called out in a loud voice don't harm yourself because all of us are here and then the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and he fell down trembling before paul and silas then he escorted them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, he and all his family were baptized. And he brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. I'm going to go ahead and finish out the story here. When daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer, I think he thought he was bringing good news, right? So the jailer comes running to Paul and, and, he, and he reports, the magistrates have sent orders to, for you to be released. So now you can go and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail. And now they're going to smuggle us out secretly. Uh, 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 certainly not. On the contrary, they can come down here and eat crow. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Then the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. You, you, you can't punish a Roman citizen without a real trial. And, and they, they big, big no-no, and they could have gotten in big trouble. So they came, and they, they apologized to them. Forgive us, please, 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 please. And, and escorting them out, they urged them to leave town. And after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers, and they departed. Wow. Good stuff. Just, just three things for you to think about terms of cultivating a, a heart of thankfulness before God. First of all, I, I think that, that where this originates deep down at its most fundamental level is this. You know that you're right with God. You, you just know that you're right with God. And, and I, I think this comes out of Paul and Silas's life in two different fronts. They, they know they're right with God eternally, and they also know they're right with God in terms of the moment. You know, if you had gone to Paul that night and said to Paul, said, on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you fit on the sin scale? And he would have told you, I I'm a 12, because I'm the worst of all sinners. He said, you know what, I, I, I persecuted God personally, and I did it in the name of God. My pride, my arrogance, my blindness, my ambition, all that stuff led me literally to fight against God. And so when it comes to being sinners, man, I'm the scum on the bottom of the shoe. You don't get any worse. So you might, might say, well, well, what are you doing then running all around the ancient world proclaiming God then? You know, wh why are you doing all of this if, if, if God is so angry with you? God's not angry with me. I'm just the worst of sinners. You know, he said, if I was to go to heaven right now and if I was to lose my life tonight in this prison, and obviously I'm paraphrasing and putting words in Paul's mouth, but this is, these are solid biblical. But if I was to come up to the door of heaven and they open the door, God's not going to ask me, were you good, bad, or somewhere in between when you were on the, on the planet? Were you right or wrong? God's not going to ask me those questions. God's going to ask me this question. Do you believe that Jesus is my son? And did he die on the cross for your sins? And did you ever ask me to forgive you based upon that? And Paul's going to say, absolutely. Absolutely. And because of that, he's, in Christ, he, he, he's right before God. He's done things in his life that are despicable in the eyes of God. Despicable in the eyes of anyone. But he's right in his relationship with God. And and many of us, even though we're church attenders, 
this sense of ability to be able to just be thankful in anything that's going on in our lives, you know, because that's God's will for us. Really where our struggle is, is at the end of the day, we're not really confident with, with our, in our relationship with God. We, we, we feel like we're going to get up to that door of heaven and God's going to say, well, what'd you do? Or what didn't you do? And, 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 and we're looking at the whole way. We haven't really responded as the jailer says, what do I got to do to be saved? And he just says, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need to do is just confess our sin to God, acknowledge that we need a Savior, and believe that Jesus is the Savior. And the Scripture says you will be saved. To confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that he really is the Son of God, Scripture says you will be saved. And you and I at that point in time, we have a foundation before God that can't be shaken by any earthquake. And some of you are experiencing earthquakes in your lives. But they were also confident in terms of the present. You know, back when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, God blinded him for three days. And he sent this guy by the name of Ananias to lay hands on him and his scales, the scales fell from his eyes and Paul was able to see again. So when God's having this conversation with Ananias, he says, I want you to go and I want you to pray over this guy. Ananias said, I know this guy. This guy is trouble. He said, no, 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 no. This guy, he's now my chosen instrument. And guess what? I'm going to send him away to the Gentiles. Where's Paul? He's in the middle of the Gentile world, right, in Philippi. I'm going to send him away to the Gentiles, and I'm going to show him how much he's got to suffer for my name. How do you think Paul felt that night sitting in the jail? Blood just leaking out of his wounds, bruises, and et cetera. Ankles all, all, all buckled down. I mean, he's suffering, right? Paul is smack dab in the center of God's will for his life. He, he knows he's, he's right with God. He's not only right with God for eternity, he's right with God in the moment. He's not only right positionally with God, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, but he's also right with him progressively. He's growing in his faith. And as he sits there that night, he knows there's not an inch between him and the love of God. And he's thankful. You know, and for you and I, right smack dab at the foundation of it is if our thankfulness flows out of knowing that we're right with God. Whether they're good experiences or bad experiences that we're going through, it flows out of that, of knowing that we're right with God. And if, you, if, you don't, if you're not sure, you can be sure today before you leave. You talk to me, talk to one of our elders, there's a place for you to indicate in your car, say, you know what, I've heard about God and faith and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not sure I've ever come to that moment where I put my faith in Christ. You can remedy that today. S secondly, I want you to see something else about Paul. Look at verse 25. Just small words, powerful words. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Part of our ability to give thanks in everything is based upon how we're tied in to the spiritual community. You know, Ecclesiastes says for a reason that a strand, uh, that a rope made of three strands is not easily broken. There's a reason why it tells us that two are better than one. Because th there is a strength, there is an encouragement, there is a perspective, there is an attitude adjustment that goes on when we're in relationship with other believers. 
See, these guys sitting in the prison that night, they were experiencing genuine spiritual community. You know, we, uh, we get to the point where we almost harp on this, and, and, and we don't mean to harp, but we almost harp on saying, you need to be involved in some kind of a group experience as a believer. Some of you, you, you know, your experience is you come in, you worship with us, you go home. That's a great thing, but that is not what it means to experience spiritual community. Spiritual community is for people to know who you have some people in your life, people that you trust spiritually. They know who you are. They know what you're going through, and they can see if you're on track or off track, and they're there to be a support and encouragement as well as an accountability. And if you don't have those kinds of people in your lives, it gets hard to be thankful. It gets hard to be thankful. You know, you could just use that simple illustration, you know, of if you just had a fire going on and you took one log off and set it off about a foot to a foot and a half away, what's going to happen to it? It's going to go out long before the other ones do, right? When you and I get disconnected from spiritual community, it just, it just comes apart. And we need to be plugged in. Paul and Silas were there together. And with that, they were able to sing words of thanks to God. One last point. Paul and Silas were living with their eyes up. They're they're in the prison, right? And yet their eyes are still looking, who can I serve? If you've been in that prison, right? Let me speak. If I'd been in that prison... I'm sitting there, and I'm singing I'm singing praises to God, and the earth starts shaking, and my shackles fall open, and the doors open up. I'm thinking, God's delivered me. And, man, and I'd be out the door before the roadrunner, right? I mean, you're just gone. You know, and you say, God's answered my prayer. What are Paul and Silas doing? Well, Paul's looking out the window. Oh, don't drop on that sword. We're still all here. What? what What's miraculous to me is that when a guy says, what will we need to do to be saved? You know, it says that Paul, at that very moment, explained to him and his entire household the gospel. And then they took care of his wounds. So instead of saying, you know what, hey, why don't we take care of the blood and the pus that's running out of my arms and back and legs, and let's get that all cleaned up, and I'll, sit, and I'll be able to sit down and be more comfortable explaining the whole thing to you. Uh-uh. He puts them first, right? You know? This whole thing at the end, it's not about pride. This verses 35 through 40, it's not about pride. Paul is holding up the image of the gospel. Guess what? Even Roman citizens believe in Jesus, you know? And next time they get ready to start messing with the Christian church, they'll think twice. And so he's standing up for the gospel. He's not not trying to protect his own reputation. It's about others. I got to tell you, you know, some of the greatest encouragement I've seen over the years is guys who are, people who are walking through difficult experiences and the attitude of their heart is, I want to be a good witness in this. You know, there's a guy, youth pastor over Grace Baptist, got brain cancer. Don't know if it's going to be terminal or not. His heart, from everything I can tell is, I want to be a good witness for this. A guy in our own church who's, Struggled physically for quite a while. The solution required multiple surgeries in the middle of it. So I've gotten a chance to get together and pray with him. He says, you know, I I just want to be a great witness to God as I go through this. Just just having our eyes up. You know, when 
when, when my boys were younger, I used to coach their basketball teams. I didn't coach them for very long because I don't know anything about basketball. You know, all I knew how to do well in basketball was foul. I was really good at fouling other people. You know, but when they're little, you know, they start off and they dribble like this, right? You know, and then they bump into the bleachers and then they go in a different direction. You know, I mean, their their heads just down. A lot of us, we get we get into our lives and start stuff hurting, and we're just we're just doing life with our head down. But you watch the guys who really know how to play basketball. What are they doing? They, they never look down. They're always looking up and they're looking to see what's out there and how they can make somebody better. You know, and too many of us are living our lives with our heads down, trying to dribble through life rather than keeping our eyes up, seeing how God can use us. And it's in the midst of that usefulness that we develop a spirit of thankfulness. The worship room of God is opened with words thankfulness. Enter his courts with thanksgiving in your heart. Enter his courts with praise. Can you honestly today say that as I knock on the door of being someone to come into the presence of God, can you sincerely say thank you for what's going on in your life today? You ask yourself that question, it'll tell you a lot about where you are spiritually. Let's pray together. God, first of all, I want to pray for those today who stand before you and, and they're not sure of where they stand before you. Father, I pray that even in this moment they would respond to the leadership of your spirit and say, I want to believe. I want to be sure. I want to know that I'm right with God. Give them the conviction to take those steps today. God, give us grateful hearts. Allow us truly to be able to come into your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite our